Hi, everyone. My name is Joe Dorfler. I am the co-chair for the Energy Committee here at the Boston Bar Association, along with uh, Stacey Rubin. We're doing this presentation uh, in conjunction with the Climate Change Committee, and we're really excited to get things started. Um, so the, this is the decarbonization of the transportation sector, where we are and the pathways forward. Uh, our speakers today include Mela Miles, Seja Saul, Nyok Hong, Alex Hurley, and Kate Fichter. Um, and with that, uh, we have some slides that we're going to be going through today, so make sure to have your screens up. And I will now turn it over to Stacy to introduce our first speaker. Excellent. Good afternoon, everyone. We are excited to have you with us this afternoon. So we have a fantastic panel that's going to talk about all things decarbonization of transportation in Massachusetts. Our state law, the Global Warming Solutions Act, requires us to achieve 25% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions below 1990 levels by 2020. We will know in a couple of years by 2023 whether we've achieved our 2020 target, although recent data is looking promising. The law also requires us to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and that was just announced on Earth Day a couple of weeks ago from the Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs. So the transportation sector is responsible for approximately 42% of greenhouse gas emissions in the Commonwealth. And our speakers are gonna talk about um, where we've been in the transportation sector, what are the barriers that we must overcome and where are we headed? So Mela Miles, Mela Bush Miles from Alternatives for Community and Environment is gonna start us off talking about community-led initiatives to decarbonize the transportation sector and how to do so in a way that benefits communities of color and low-income communities. We'll then hear from a stellar team from the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection, uh, Nap Wang and Seja Sal about low emission vehicle standards, zero emission vehicle standards, and efforts to increase the number of electric vehicles in the Commonwealth. After that, we'll hear from Alexander Early from the Attorney General's Office about recent decisions from the Department of Public Utilities around uh, infrastructure and programs to support electric vehicles. Then we will hear from Kate Fichter from the Massachusetts Department of Transportation about Massachusetts leadership in designing the transportation and climate initiative. So I'd like to just read uh, Mela's biography before we turn it over to her. So Mela Bush-Miles is a native Bostonian who has spent decades organizing and advocating for transit equity and environmental justice. She now serves at Alternatives for Community and Environment as the Director of Transit-Oriented Development and Environmental Justice. She also directs the T-Riders Union, an empowered network of MBTA riders fighting for transit justice and equity. She formerly served as the Acting Director and Lead Organizer for the Greater Four Corners Action Coalition. Mela, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. I just want to quickly um, open with a little story. And the story is about a young man who happens to be my son. And he is um, now in his early 30s. But when he was eight years old, we moved to Boston from Milton into some um, 
some old housing stock. And it was a beautiful house, but it had a hidden issue behind the walls. And that hidden issue was mold. So my son developed uh, a severe case of asthma. And as he, um, as I was struggling to raise this young man, um, I, I got involved one day by going to a town hall in Jamaica Plain about asthma and diesel and indoor air quality. So at that point, I was, I, um, I got up and I started learning how to advocate for my son because over the past few years, he spent uh, 38 times in the hospital, up even until last year, fighting for his life. So that got me involved in community organizing and working to address some of the outdoor and the indoor air quality that uh, was causing a lot of his problems. The mold was a precipitating factor, but the other factor that um, impacted his life was trying to go to school, going through rows of school buses and having a lot of um, diesel particulates and having to go through a cloud of smoke to get in the front door of the school, walking up a line of school buses. And so I learned a lot and realized that he was being impacted by diesel particulates as well as the mold that had attacked his arms. So I began organizing for him to try and save his life. And over the past uh, 20 plus years, I have gotten involved in a number of different initiatives. The first one was the On the, Moon, on the Move Clean Buses for Boston campaign. And what I did with that was I worked on um, trying to get the diesel buses from, as a private citizen, on behalf of my son, to get the diesel buses to start going through our community of Jamaica Plain and Roxbury because it was a severely high asthma rate in that area. We were successful in um, shutting down a number of bus yards that were deadheading buses through the community and had caused the community to have one of the highest asthma rates in the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts. After doing all of that, I went on and started working with ACE and the T-Riders Union and became a member. I was later hired to work at the Greater Four Corners Action Coalition, where I was given the task to um, organize and direct the community outreach for the um, STEM outline. So that was in 2006. Since 2006, we were able to work directly with the community and develop the voice of the community to, um, to get four new stations built. I think there's a slide. <laughs> so we opened three new stops on July 17, 2013. And this was somebody's mom this is me speaking out and giving the uh, keynote address. Someone captured a funny picture of uh, me giving the keynote address at the opening 
of three stations on the Fairmont line. So I had gone from a technician working for the phone company to standing here with all of these elected officials and transit, offic transit officials, as you can see, the governor, Bev Scott, the general manager, um, Ayanna Presley, and so many more other people that were there that day. And why were we there? Because we had to develop our voice and we had to really fight every step of the way to get our, um, get the station open. Go to the next slide. So it all began on a bus. Okay, so we looked at our historical relevance of people fighting for transit justice and wanting to have the opportunity to um, have, be able to ride on a bus or a train, which we would relate to the Fairmont line. And so we have Ms. Rosa Parks here, and she inspired us to get up and try and get one seat, one ride, and be able to um, get, uh, get service on this line. This line runs through the most transit dependent sections of the city of Boston, where there is 25% of the city's actual um, population lives along this line. And the majority of the black and brown and lower income people in the city of Boston are concentrated on the Fairmont line. So we needed more service. We needed to have um, stations that we could get on the train because we were being dumped with diesel particulates, but we had no option to even be able to utilize this service to get to where we needed to go. Next slide. So on July 17th, uh, we were able to open the stations. And so we got stations at uh, Newmarket. We got stations at Four Corners, Talbot Ave, and um, finally, um, we were able to open the last station, which was Blue Hill Ave, which was last year on, on March 6th. Next slide. Next slide. Just organize. So the last station opened six years later, and it took, it took years of organizing to try and get this last station opened. Um, and this was the culmination of all of these years of work. Next slide. So one of the things that we were really concerned about was, and it took us a really long time to actually get these things done because of biases and neglect of not really listening to the community's voice and we would have to keep saying the same thing over and over again when we would look at other other lines and those lines would um get all kinds of amenities we had to fight really hard to get things uh the things that we just finally accomplished so as of this year the Fairmont line will be running increased frequency and charlie cox will finally be accepted starting on may 18th 2020 and we are working to uh, market that the the um sorry a little nervous <laughs> so the 
the other things that we have achieved that are related to looking at how we can reduce the diesel particulates and um, reduce the carbon uh, impact on our communities and impact the respiratory health of the residents along the Fairmont line is that the T has agreed to run a pilot and start the uh, process of electri um, electrification of the line. So the first two lines um, in the real vision that they decided to do would be the Fairmont line and the Providence Stoughton line. So we're, we're working really hard to move forward the electrification of the lines and on the Fairmont line coming up soon. So hopefully that will happen within the next few years and we're trying to motivate the MBTA to actually um, move that process more quickly along. And one last thing that I'll say is the other issue that we're doing to address the um, respiratory health of our community and um, and to decrease the, the carbon impact on our residents is to work to get electric buses. There were five new electric buses purchased by the MBTA and recently they purchased 60 electric hybrid buses. And hopefully after this coronavirus situation uh, calms down, we'll be able to um, see those buses being put into our community and um, we'll be able to see the, the, um, the electric buses running through our community very soon. So thank you, that's about it. Mela, thank you so much. And your comments are exceptionally timely as we all celebrated, uh, Mela and I and others together on Tuesday, which was World Asthma Day of this week, acknowledging the connection between air quality and, um, and our health, our public health. And certainly um, we need to be really focusing on decarbonization efforts that benefit those people who are most at risk with respiratory and other health issues. So thank you. Our next set of speakers are from the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. So we have Nat Huang, who is an environmental analyst with the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. And she has been with MassDEP for over 10 years, managing and administering the low emission vehicle program to reduce air pollution from motor vehicles and transportation sources. And she'll be co-presenting with Sejal Shaw, who is an environmental analyst with the Department of Environmental Protection, working on transportation air quality. And Sejal's focus for the past five years has been on transportation electrification through various electric vehicle and charging station grant programs. So I'll turn it over to uh, Nat. Thank you, Stacy. Can you hear me okay? Great. Um, uh, thank you um, for the introduction and the uh, opportunity for MassDEP to speak uh, about the LEV program and the MassEVIP program. Uh, so with that, I'll just go right to my portion of the presentations um, on LEV legislation and regulation. And Sejo uh, will talk about the different incentive and grant programs. Next slide. So um, back in 1967, the Federal Clean Air Act uh, granted California the authority to set its own emission standards. 
And this is due to the unique air quality uh, problems and the standards have to be at least as stringent as the uh, federal standards. And the Clean Air Act um, later amended to add the section 177 to allow other states such as Massachusetts to adopt the uh, vehicle, the new vehicle emission standards. Um, so when you hear um, section seven, 177 states that refers to the states that adopted the uh, California standards. And under the Massachusetts law, uh, Mass General Law, Chapter 111, Section 142K, Mass CEP is required to adopt the, um, the California standards, again, as long as it's um, at least as stringent or more um, than the federal standards. So then in 1991, uh, Mass CEP adopted the, the low bit, uh, emission vehicle program. Um, promulgated the 310 CMR uh, 7.40, which is the LEV program. And under the LEV program, there are different um, regulations, but I just want to point out the three main regulations that we have. Um, these are the LEV uh, low emission vehicle, the ZEV standard zero emission vehicle, and the greenhouse gas. Um, these apply to uh, new passenger um, light duty trucks and medium duty vehicles. So let me talk a little bit about uh, each of the regulations, uh, the standards. Uh, under the LEV-3 standards, um, it's required fleet average non-methane organic gas, which is the NMOG and nitrogen oxide, which is NOx. Um, this was the um, one of the major revision um, from LEV-2 to LEV-3. Um, this uh, revision back in 2012 included the LEV-3, um, also the GHG, and the ZEV standards. And under the ZEV standards, um, it's not the same as a fleet average um, requirement. It, it's a percentage requirement where it requires a minimum percentage of ZEV to be delivered for sale in Massachusetts. Um, so as you can see, um, manufacturers uh, place X number of vehicles um, to Massachusetts and they have to comply um, in 2018, four and a half percent of that has to be ZEV and model year 2020 have to be nine and a half and it ramps up to 2025 and beyond to 22%. Um, and these uh, ZEV are, they only apply to BEV, battery electric, fuel cells, and plug-in. Um, so hybrids are no longer um, applicable. Um, it used to be in the past, but not anymore under this, um, the current ZEV regulation mandate. Um, and this was last uh, revised back in 2018. And lastly, I'll talk about the greenhouse gas standards. Um, this is the fleet average of carbon dioxide, which is the CO2 requirements. And that was last, um, Rise back in 2018. Um, and the reason why we uh, did the revision back in 2018 was the, um, the federal rollback of the GHG, um, which brings back to this slide. Uh,
So let me give you a little background about the um, how we adopted the GHE standards. Uh, back in 2012, uh, Massachusetts adopted the California and the federal 2012 um, final rule, which was also called the 2012 National Program. And that was under the Obama administration, um, made an agreement with California, federal agencies, and all the automakers um, to have one national program. And that, um, under that program, it requires um, a 5% annual increase uh, through model year 2025. And then in August 2018, um, under the Trump administration, the federal agencies, uh, EPA and NHTSA, uh, they jointly proposed the rulemaking entitled uh, the SAFE rule, which is the SAFE, stands for Safer Affordable Fuel Efficient Vehicles Rule um, for model years 2021 to 26. So under this proposed rule, um, there's a freeze um, of the federal fuel economy and the uh, GHG standards at the 2020 levels through model year 2026. So it's really a zero annual increase from 2020 to 2026. And there are two parts to this rule. Um, part one, it was a withdrawal of the uh, waiver that it had given to California previously um, for its GHG and the ZEV programs. And that was published in the Federal Register on August, uh, sorry, on September 27th. And it was effective um, in November 2019. And then there's part two to this uh, safe rule was the, um, the revisions to the fuel economy and the greenhouse gas uh, vehicle emission standards for model year 2021 to 26. And this was published in the Federal Register on April 30th, 2020, just most recently. And that will become effective 60 days after, which will be June 29th, 2020. And this, with this new, um, this final rule, the the requirements, it, it's more. Um, so they increase it to one and a half percent in the standards for model year 2021 20, um, to 2026. So as you can see, um, the proposed rule, it was flatline um, zero annual increase. But the final rule, um, since I got a lot of comments, um, hundreds, uh, so they increase it to one and a half percent. But you can see that it's still less than the 2020 final rule, which was 5%. So, so that's why we, we, we wanted to maintain the current mission standards of the 2012 national program. So that's why we adopted the 2018 amendment to clarify the deemed to comply options um, that would only apply to the EPA um, vehicle standards that were harmonized with California in 2012. So what this DEMA comply option um, adopted back in 2012, um, it allows automakers to comply with the federal regulations in place of the California regulations. So if um, automakers choose this option, 
they have to comply with the 2012 national standard that was adopted back um, during the Obama administration um, and not with this current safe rule. So in addition to the, um, the LEV regulations, uh, we also have uh, regulations and um, standards uh, an effort to reduce the CO2 emissions to meet the Global Warming Solutions Act. And these are the state fleet vehicles. Um, 310 CMR 60.06 is the, the state fleet regulation um, that CO2 emission limits for state fleet passenger vehicles. And that was in effect um, back in August, 2017. And this was created um, Oh, as a result of the two mandates. The first was uh, Governor Baker's Executive Order 569 uh, back in September 2016 that requires MassDEP to set limits uh, for transportation sector. Uh, that includes the state fleet. Um, and the second was the, the Mass Supreme Judicial Court's decision in Kane versus the DEP back in May 2016 that requires uh, MassDEP um, to meet the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2020 um, GHG emissions that requires a 25% uh, below the 1990 uh, levels. Um, so in 2016, MassDEP, we have the, uh, the state, we do the GHG state inventory and it shows that in 2016 that we were about 21 percent below the 1990 uh, baseline level so it also noted that we are expecting to meet the 2020 emissions limit of the global warming solutions act um, and this regulation sets uh, co2 limits for passenger vehicles that's owned or leased by the commonwealth of mass and establish the um, annual decline in um, GHG emission targets. These are for model year, uh, sorry, it's calendar year 2018 to 2025 and beyond. And lastly, um, another effort um, from Massachusetts is we have the mass fuel efficiency standard. And this standard is not a regulation, but the standard, it requires the purchase of uh, more fuel efficient and alternative fuel vehicles. And this is, um, requires a minimum of 5% total alternative fuel vehicles acquisition each year um, for the, um, the executive offices. And this applies to executive branch vehicles that's less than 10,000 pounds. Um, applies to sedans, um, SUVs and trucks and vans. Um, so with the LEV rules and the state regulations um, in place, I, we believe that this plays a pretty major role in uh, CO2 emissions reductions uh, to meet the Global Warming Solutions Act and the commitment of the 300,000 EVs on the road by 2025 under the ZEV MOU. So with that, um, I'd like to pass it over to Sejo um, to talk about the MOU, the ZEB MOU, and the um, incentive programs. Thank you, Noah. Can you all hear me okay? Yes, great. Okay. 
So as Nas said, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the EV programs that we have related to grants for charging stations and electric vehicles. In the interest of time, I, I could talk about each individual program for an hour. So I'm going to start moving through these pretty quickly. Would you mind backing up one slide, please? Yep, so the ZEV MOU is one of the main um, drivers for most of our programs that we started back in 2013. Um, governors of 10 states have um, signed on to this MOU to help with ZEV deployment and make sure that there is a regional effort and not just a state effort, because that's just as important. Um, one of the major, major um, goals of this MOU is to have 3.5 million EVs across all 10 states by 2025 um, based on our consumer light duty fleet. The Massachusetts share falls at around 300,000 EVs by 2025. And as of December 31st, we only have 25,838 EVs in Massachusetts. I'm sure that's increased by a thousand or two over the last quarter. I just don't have those numbers yet. Uh, but we do have a long ways to go. And the rest, the grant programs that we've created, um, we're trying to reach that number. Next slide, please. So the grants I'm going to be talking about are all of these. Uh, next slide, please. I'm sure folks have heard of the More EV program. Massachusetts offers rebates for electric vehicles. More EV, it worked out to be an amazing acronym. Um, as you can see, we've had the program uh, since 2014 and through April, um, $32 million have been given away for almost 16,000 EVs. This program is uh, administered through our sister agency, the Department of Energy Resources. And I, uh, the program has recently in January, Governor Baker refunded the program through the end of 2021. Next slide, please. The next big uh, pot of money, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, I'm sure folks have heard about the Volkswagen settlement related to the Dieselgate scandal that Volkswagen went through. I won't rehash that, but um, because of that settlement, Massachusetts received around $75 million to work on um, uh, sustainable and cleaner transportation. Uh, MassDEP is the beneficiary um, currently designated agency. And current plans are we've issued um, awards for $22 million for electric transit buses for Pioneer Valley, Martha's Vineyard, and the Greater Attleboro uh, Taunton Transit Authorities. $7.5 million was um, opened up as an open solicitation for all eligible uh, mitigation actions. So the settlement um, specifies what we can pay for with this fund, um, and they're called eligible mitigation actions. So 7.5 million was opened up last year. That program has closed and we have awarded funds. Um, the remaining 11.2 million, uh, excuse me, not remaining, but 11.2 million um, is set aside for purchase and installation of light duty electric vehicle supply equipment, so EV charging stations. Next slide, please. Um, from that 11.2 million, uh, MassDEP created the Public Access Charging Program. So we look at EV charging stations based on what their use is going to be, what the use case for that charger is going to be. So public access, if you're looking at a municipal lot or a retail um, establishment or a possible, you know, if you're, uh, you happen to be a business where you're going to let the general public have access to that charger, that's what we mean by public access. 
And our definition also says that it is public access for a minimum of at least 12 hours a day. Um, the program was open last March um, and we awarded funds last November for uh, close to $2 million. All of those uh, projects are currently underway um, with all contracts signed. So that's a great sign for us. Next slide, please. Um, additional programs that we created were for workplace charging. We've actually had a workplace charging program in effect since 2014 um, with another uh, pot of money. Uh, workplace charging is mainly, it, it, if you go to work, your car is parked there for eight hours, similar to multi-unit dwelling where you live at an apartment or you live at a condo, you can charge your car there. That was the intent behind these programs. So for these, these are rolling programs. So they're currently open. If you happen to work in an office building or if you, you know, if you have 15 or more employees on site and you're interested in getting a charger at your work so you can get that EV, please reach out, um, there's still funding remaining. If you live in an apartment complex or if you live in a condo community and you wanna install chargers so that your community can use them, please reach out, the uh, program is still active. Next slide, please. Uh, another program that we started in 2013, this was actually our first program, and this was more of a leading by example program. This is for public entities only, so cities and towns in Massachusetts, state agencies, and public universities and colleges. Our intent was uh, we wanted constituents within the town to see that these vehicles are not just little golf carts. They're actual vehicles that they can see themselves being driven in. Um, and to this day, we've awarded 3.13 million, um, that's a weird way of saying it, over $3 million uh, for 286 battery electric vehicles. Um, and we've had amazing success with all these municipalities, cities, they're primarily cities and towns that have taken this on. It's uh, not only sustainable, but it's also been economical for them. Next slide, please. So these uh, next two or three programs that I'm gonna be talking about, they're not funding programs necessarily, but they're ways for um, creating uh, public um, light to uh, ZEV deployment. So Mass Evolve started two years ago. Uh, it's a recognition program for leaders, for companies and universities and colleges that are engaged already in deploying ZEVs on their campus, within their um, supply chain. Um, to this date, we have 19 participants. They go through, uh, they have to submit a pledge saying, yes, we're gonna be uh, working towards ZEV deployment. They submit a ZEV action plan. They have to submit annual reports. There is a wonderful website that um, uh, is hist historical record of all of this. Um, and our, it gives these companies and universities a chance to have a peer-to-peer -peer connect so that they can understand what you know, one company did that this other company had no idea they could do. So it's given a great idea. Uh, it's been a wonderful um, information sharing uh, platform for folks interested in ZEV deployment. Next slide, please. And then another program um, that you folks may have heard of is Mass Drive Clean. This we began oh, about four years ago. It's, as it says, butts and seats. And we want folks to be able, we want people to understand that these cars are real, that once they get in them, they're not just little golf carts. They're not, um, they're fun. They're regular vehicles that they can see themselves in. Um, we've held test drive events. They're um, no, no pressure test drive events so that we 
bring in multiple manufacturers of EVs so that multiple brands, so that you're not just dealing with one dealer, you have multiple dealers to work with and you can drive and test drive each one and compare and contrast. Um, they've been very popular and hopefully after this coronavirus business is over, we'll be able to get back into this again because this summer, spring and summer are prime time. Next slide, please. Um, I just wanted to point out, uh, folks always, um, you know, ask where are the chargers? So I pulled this off of the Alternative Fuel Data Center website. These are the public charging stations as of May 4th in Massachusetts. Um, some of these are level two, some of these are DC fast charging, but as you can see, we have deployed a ton of public charging and with the public charging program that we have, we're gonna uh, deploy some more charging there. So it is definitely coming online. It's just a matter of looking for it and finding it. And once you start looking, you're never gonna be able to miss it. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, this is just a resources page uh, for all the different programs that we've talked about. If you have any further questions or need some clarifications, please reach out. Thank you. Back to you, Stacy. Thank you so much, uh, Nan Sejal. Really appreciate it. So I appreciate also that our participants are using the Q&A feature. That's fantastic. We are going to get to questions after we make it through the next two presentations. And I also want to note that we are recording this webinar. It will be available to people who are unable to participate live. And we will be circulating a copy of the slides to all of the participants today. So with that, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Alexander Early. So Alex is an Assistant Attorney General in the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. His work includes advocating on behalf of ratepayers in proceedings before the Department of Public Utilities. Alex's work spans multiple topics, including electric vehicles, utility rate cases, and competitive electric supply. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Alex. Great, thank you very much, Stacey. Um, Thanks everyone for tuning in and thank you Stacy and Joe for organizing this. Uh, it's been very interesting so far. Um, so I'm gonna focus today on the um, electric vehicle charging programs as proposed and approved by the Department of Public Utilities um, for the utility companies. So just by way of overview, I'm gonna talk about the standard of review as set forth in 13182A um, and then I'm going to talk about the three um, utility programs that have been approved um, in some fashion anyway, and, and some of my takeaways. So in 13182A, the department set, set forth the standard, um, essentially found that the distribution companies, meaning electric companies, may have a competitive advantage in owning and operating EVSE, which is essentially the charging stations. Um, and therefore, the department found that utility companies are generally not allowed to recover the cost of owning EV chargers, but the department outlined three exceptions to this general rule. Next slide, please. So the department said that utilities may cover, recover for charging related to their own fleet vehicles and employee charging, research, development, and deployment efforts, and the department said that it may grant cost recovery for ownership and operation of EV chargers in response to a company proposal. And for uh, the department laid, up, laid out three criteria for approval and allowance of cost recovery for the companies. The, the proposals must be in the public interest, 
meet a need regarding the advancement of EVs in the Commonwealth that is not likely to be met by the competitive market and not hinder the development of the competitive market. Next slide, please. So in 2017, um, both Eversource and National Grid came in with their own EV infrastructure programs. Um, Eversource was first in DPU 1705, which was their electric rate case. Um, they proposed a five-year program, $45 million approximately on infrastructure for make-ready sites. And I'll explain a little bit what that means. Um, but essentially, um, they were proposing not to own the chargers themselves, but to um, uh, have the program pay for some of the infrastructure upgrades that are needed, and then to recruit third-party site hosts to actually purchase the chargers and, and own on their site. Um, and through this program, which is um, ongoing now, as it's been approved, um, they're estimating around you know, close to 4,000 level two charging ports at, at 452 sites um, and 72 direct current fast charging ports at 36 sites. Um, and just, just for reference, um, a level two charger, uh, I, I think it varies depending on the battery size, but can charge, uh, usually charge in around eight hours and a fast charger is, it can do it in around a half hour to an hour. Um, and so uh, not long after National Grid proposed its, pro its program in uh, a standalone case in DPU 17-13, um, this was an, a proposal for an eight year program, uh, $25 million, um, again, a similar type um, make ready program um, not proposing to own uh, most of the chargers, but have third-party site hosts own the chargers. Um, and uh, through their program, they proposed uh, 1,200 level two charging ports and 80 DC fast chargers. Next slide, please. So um, just wanted to explain a little bit the, the make-ready model that the, the, those two utility programs um, uh, utilized. Uh, this was pulled from Eversource's um, proposal in DPU 1705, uh, but National Grids is, is uh, fairly similar. And um, the way that it works uh, and the way that um, this graphic kind of explains it is, you know, as business as usual case, um, if someone wants to install a level two or, or a DC fast charger on their property, um, they would not only have to pay for the charger and obviously um, any vehicles, uh, but but also there would be some other utility costs um, such as the meter, the panel, and and the pad mounted transformer, and that the customer would be responsible for some of those costs as well. And whatever source and national grid did is they came in with these program and, and provided the costs up to the charger to allow the customer to just purchase the the charger itself and and the vehicle. Next slide, please. So both of these programs were approved. Um, and the department found um, in, in orders that were uh, decided pretty close in time, so some of the language is similar, but um, so I go through them together here. Uh, the department found that both Eversource and National Grid's uh, proposals in 1705 and 1713 were in the public interest. Um, they found you know, that, that they lowered barriers, barriers to ownership, they helped us in meeting our GWSA public policy goals and provided benefits to customers. Next slide, please. Um, regarding the second standard, um, the department found that there was definitely uh, a need for EV infrastructure in the state and that there were technical and financial barriers that these programs helped to alle alleviate and that were unlikely to be met at the time by the competitive market. 
Um, and then regarding the third standard as standard as to whether or not it would hinder the development of the competitive EV charging market, um, the department essentially said that um, these um, these programs were not actually uh, the the utility companies were not actually participating in the competitive EV charging market because they were not purchasing the chargers. They were uh, merely facilitating um, third parties to buy chargers and and um, not sort of stepping on the toes of the competitive market. And so in in um, in both of these cases, found that it wouldn't hinder the development of the competitive market. Next slide, please. So um, not long after um, National Grid and Eversource's proposals uh, were approved, um, National Grid came in for its electric rate case in DPU 18-150, um, and it proposed uh, a massive increase in um, EV infrastructure spending, you know, five-year program, um, 166.5 million on infrastructure, you know, over 17,000 level two chargers, 300 DC fast chargers, um, this was for both residential and non-residential um, and an off-peak charging re rate, uh, rebate and a demand charge discount. Um, long story short, the department denied the majority of this program. Um, it, it did approve approximately $9 million for some of the new elements, uh, the residential, for instance, residential off-peak charging rebate, uh, the fleet advisory service, and uh, research and development on co-locating DC fast chargers uh, with energy storage and solar. Um, but I think essentially the department found that because um, National Grid's phase one program had, had really just been implemented, um, there hadn't been um, many EV chargers installed under the program. And um, the department um, decided that it was premature to be, to be uh, uh, approving a new program on top of that without having any results to analyze. Um, and one um, interesting thing about this as well is that um, in this program, National Grid was proposing um, to uh, that same make ready model that were proposed for the previous two cases, but also uh, to give customers the option. So they could either have, they could either own the EV charger themselves or they could have uh, the company own the EV charger. And the department um, at this point said that company ownership of EV chargers, um, in, at least in this circumstance, was not warranted because, again, there hadn't been a lot of data from the other two programs. And um, so really that second prong as to whether um, it meets a need that is not being met by the competitive market, um, I think the department found that it really couldn't show that at this point. Not to say that they couldn't show it in the future, but that at this point they hadn't, uh, that weren't able to show that. Next slide, please. So um, just some of my final takeaways. Um, the um, really just next step is kind of evaluating the success of these programs. Um, you know, how many site hosts were, were able to be signed up? Where are the chargers located? Are there any gaps or oversaturation? Um, has there been more EV adoption as a result of these programs in the service territory? Um, as, as hard as that may be to measure. Um, you know, should the, and, and the, you know, the next question is should the utilities continue to invest in, in make ready or other similar infrastructure programs, or would that money be better spent elsewhere? Um, I think we really don't know until we've seen kind of what, how these programs did. Um, and just an, another aspect that hasn't really been talked a lot, um, ha hasn't really been dealt with a lot, I should say, with, with the um, utility programs is EV rate design. 
Um, in all three cases, stakeholders have advocated for the companies to develop EV-specific rates, um, you know, whether, you know, some sort of time of use rate to reflect um, the, the actual cost of electricity at particular times uh, to encourage uh, customers to charge um, when electricity is cheaper and when it's better for the grid. Um, up until this point, there hasn't been a lot of movement on the utilities proposing those types of programs. N National Grid did propose um, an off-peak charging rebate, which uh, made it into their the final approval for an 18150. Um, so we'll have that uh, to look at to see um, how, see if there's any success there. Uh, but the department has said, essentially said that, it, that it's taking a kind of wait and see, let the utilities collect the data and um, and and then develop some rate design and demand response programs. And then the last thing I would just say is, you know, something that <clears throat> we at the AG's office have advocated is is whether or not you know a, a more collaborative kind of statewide approach to EV infrastructure might be beneficial. Um, you know, these the way that we deal with these cases, they come in kind of on a piecemeal basis, and we you know we do our best to review them. We you know, but it's it's hard to um, without everyone in the room, um, you know, state and local governments, um, you know, all the groups that have an interest in this. Um, we you know I think it might be beneficial to kind of think about this on a more global scale and not just, you know, each each utility in their service territory. So thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Alex, for taking us through uh, a lot of time that um, many stakeholders spent before the DPU and summarizing where we currently are at. And so our last presentation, uh, certainly not least, is going to be about the Transportation and Climate Initiative. So I'd like to welcome Kate Victor, who is the Assistant Secretary for Policy Coordination at the Massachusetts Department of Transportation, where she has served in various capacities since 2004. Kate is a graduate of the University of Chicago and MIT and has professional experience in transportation planning and policy. Prior to her current role, Kate served as the project manager for the extension of the MBTA Green Line to Somerville and Medford and the expansion of Boston South Station. She has also worked for the US Department of Transportation and for the Massachusetts Legislature, where she served and, and worked on transportation related issues. So with that, Kate, please teach us about TCI. Oh, Kate, I think you have to unmute yourself. Oh God, rookie mistake, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, hi everybody, um, I will start again. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry not to see you all in person, but I'm really glad that we are able to do this. Um, and I see that the questions are stacking up in the Q&A box, so I will try to bring us through this fairly quickly. Um, Stacey, why don't you advance one slide if that's possible? Thank you. Um, so I am assuming that folks in the audience have at least some familiarity with the Transportation and Climate Initiative. I am very available to talk to folks separately if, if anybody would like a kind of deeper exploration. Um, but essentially, the Transportation and Climate Initiative is a collaboration. It's, it's not a place. It's not an organization. It's a collaboration among jurisdictions along the East Coast to try to work together to develop um, a multi-state way of reducing, particularly carbon, but reducing emissions generally from the transportation sector. As we have heard, transportation is, you know, the most stubborn and the largest um, sector for carbon. 
uh, very difficult to address um, in ways that other things have not been quite as hard. Um, so the TCI program was, was started, kind of modeled on the, greenhouse, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative program that folks have talked about here. Um, and essentially, more or less from the beginning, the idea was that it would be some kind of cap and trade program. Um, some other things were looked at, but that, that was really kind of where we focused in on pretty quickly. Um, that has continued to be the idea. Um, after many years of sort of wandering down the path of trying to figure out how to do this, um, over the last year and a half or so, we really buckled down um, and developed a draft MOU, which some of you may have seen or commented on. Um, public comments are still welcome. Um, so we basically have the framework of what a program could look like, even though technical work is still underway. Um, and we are sort of moving through the public, the public process and the internal process to figure out how we move forward. Um, next slide, please. Um, so I don't need to read this to everybody, but, but basically the, the idea is to try to do a, a bunch of different things with a future program. Um, first and foremost, to reduce carbon emissions from the transportation sector, very simply stated. Um, but secondarily, but almost as importantly, is to, to use that as a way to generate funding as sort of a happy side effect that can be then used to invest in infrastructure and programs, um, some of which we've been talking about here, uh, that would sort of further allow people to travel in ways that don't require carbon. So if it works well, it's a sort of happy virtuous cycle where you have um, you know, money coming in that allows you to support things that allow people to travel without carbon. So there's less carbon and sort of it goes around happily. Um, next slide, please. Um, so I know we've heard today about the Global Warming Solutions Act, so I won't, I won't go through it all over again. But the, the sort of important things to know in the TCI context is that of all of the states, um, Massachusetts is the one that has the most rigorous and the sort of litigation tested um, required declining emissions. But most of the states in the TCI group have some kind of public statement around um, goals for emissions reduction. Some of them are more stringent than others, um, but ours is clearly defined, clearly required, um, and is something we need to move towards. And that's a big, not the only reason, but a big part of why we are participating in TCI, because we see it as one important way to help meet our GWSA requirements. Next slide, please. Um, again, I assume folks in the room have at least some familiarity with the basic idea of, of cap and trade, or what we're calling here cap and invest, um, because of this sort of second piece where there would be money available to invest in different types of, of kind of green transportation or green mobility. Um, but essentially, any, any seller of, of transportation fuels, and we're specifically looking at on-road, so not aviation, not maritime, um, not agriculture, um, but they would be required to hold permits um, to sell the fuels. The permits are essentially, as I say here, sort of a proxy for the amount of gasoline that is sold and the amount of carbon that is burned as a result. Um, there would be a regional auction platform, probably quarterly, um, and the key part of all of this is that the number of permits available would decrease over time, um, thereby hopefully encouraging um, the consumption of kind of straight up gasoline to decline and the use of biofuels and other blended fuels and EVs and other ways of getting around to kind of increase in accordance. Um, and if we can pull it off, it will be the first and only transportation only um, cap and trade program in the world, which would be pretty cool. Uh, next slide, please. 
Yes, so we are, as I mentioned, we are currently um, receiving public comments on the draft memorandum of understanding. We have received many, many from all over the region covering a wide um, spectrum of types of ideas. Love to hear more. They really are important to us. We really do take them seriously. Um, work is ongoing, even in this virtual universe. Um, we actually have not missed a meeting we had planned to do. We're just not doing them in person. There's still a lot of technical work, a lot of modeling work that's being done, um, and the stakeholder work that, that relates primarily to the public comment process. Um, but the next steps out there are to finalize the memorandum of understanding, and then beyond that, to develop a model rule that the different states could use to actually implement the program. And every state have slightly different frameworks and sort of requirements for what it will take to, to implement a TCI-like program. Um, for us, it is comparatively easy because the executive branch actually has legislative approval to move forward with something that looks very much like this. Um, but other states have kind of different paths that they need to follow. So that, that will be a process um, kind of for all of us probably over the next several years. Um, and I think the next slide, yes. Um, so the first is the email address for submitting any kind of public feedback. Um, and then that's me, if anybody would like to just talk separately about this um, or any other transportation and carbon issues. And that is it, that's me, and thank you. Excellent, Kate, thank you so much. So um, now we are gonna get into some great questions. Um, so first, I would just like to start off by asking if uh, each of our speakers can just identify what is one challenge that you're currently experiencing in your daily work on transportation and climate, and how do you propose to address that challenge? Anybody want to take that first? I'd be happy to actually. Um, I mean, obviously, this session is taking place in the middle of you know a, a very very weird time to be talking about transportation, um, but also a very interesting one and. You know, for the TCI work, for a lot of the work that we do, we have been working in a world of like intense vehicular congestion, um, rising emissions, just a lot of sort of mobility constraints and challenges all over the system. Um, and we're suddenly looking at a changed world and we don't really know what the future is going to be for any of our modes um, or for the consumption of kind of conventional fuels. Um, so that obviously is a huge thing that's causing us all to kind of step back and think about um, what we do. But I think that the, the sort of single biggest challenge on carbon reduction in transportation, and this was true a year ago and it continues to be true, is that, that so much of it really comes down to human behavior and how, how people travel and why they travel the way they do. And those are very individual, individualistic decisions. Um, and government has tools that it can use, but they, are tough to use because they they really people like newage doesn't work people need a hard shove to change what they're doing um, so how how we work within that framework to encourage different types of travel and different types of vehicles and fuels is just kind of a core a core challenge if that wasn't too long that's great thanks kate anybody else go ahead mellow so in the midst of all of this crazy um, pandemic, uh, transportation has risen up as a major feature for people who are frontline workers who have to travel on buses. And we found that um, the buses were uh, being overcrowded 
and they were prioritizing as usual, you know, rail, rail service and not realizing how devastating it was for someone to try to make a decision to go to work and get on a bus full of potentially um, infected people that they were rubbing shoulders with because the bus was overcrowded and the service had been cut or stay home and lose their jobs. And so it was lose-lose all around. So, you know, some of the issues that we had to address were to uh, work with the MBTA to um, fix the problem, add more buses, um, clean the buses up, make some better policies. And we did achieve some of those goals. And they've, they now have um, an indicator on the bus saying the bus is getting crowded and they can tell central control, scramble a bus, get more buses out into the community. And we have squatters out there saying that more buses were added in and the, the crowding uh, was uh, addressed. But what we're really concerned, even after, God willing, this is over, um, is will people trust the transportation system to go back out and ride? We were working so hard uh, to address like mode shift and get people out of their cars and reduce the particulate matter and all of the ultrafine particles and everything that were being spewed out into the air. And now, how do you get people to feel comfortable to say, I'm going to get back on a bus? I personally have not gotten on a bus in about seven or eight weeks. I walk everywhere. If I go anywhere, I just basically stay in the house. So how do we address that issue? And looking at the impact of the coronavirus on the climate and how all of these um, pollution clouds have just disappeared over all of these major cities, we don't want to see them grow back. But if everyone gets into their private vehicles after this and starts driving again, congestion, cloud, and the, the problem, it just grows and grows and grows. So those are some of the issues that we're really concerned with is trusting the system and getting people back on and keeping people safe when they are riding and making them feel comfortable to know that they are safe to get on a vehicle, that it's clean enough, that it's disinfected and so on and so forth. That's great. Thanks, Mella. And hopefully um, the MBTA and, and regional transit authorities are willing to operate vehicles frequently enough so that people can experience the social distancing that they, they need in order to feel safe riding. And as I mentioned, you know, they, they had purchased 60 buses, which they were trying to privatize and uh, farm out to the highest bidder to run, which probably would have been another disaster because we couldn't regulate what was going on with those private companies. Um, but to get those buses out into the community, we also were working on um, discount fare passes for lower income people. Some, and the T has been moving that forward, but we want to make sure that it's budgeted in so, uh, so that there will be a budget for that. Right now, there's all rear door boarding, so people aren't really paying to ride the buses. Uh, but we, you know, we want to see how we can keep equity in the forefront of the decisions that are made going forward. Thanks, Mela. Anybody else want to add on? Yeah, Alex, go for it. Thanks. Um, 
So I would just say in terms of challenges um, from the ratepayer utility world, I think it's, uh, from my perspective, it's, it's balancing, you know, the clear need for more EV infrastructure uh, with, with the costs that that imposes on, on all ratepayers. You know, I, I talked about um, in my, you know, talked about utility recovery of these programs and what that means is that it's going to be in your rates, you know, wh whether you have an EV or not. Um, and so, you know, it really is a question of, of who should pay for it and how do we distribute those costs equitably. Uh, I don't have an easy answer for that other than, um, you know, like I said, having a more collaborative approach, having more people at the table and trying to think about this on a statewide basis um, as to where infrastructure should go and, and to ensure that it's, it's spread out equitably across the state. Thank you, Alex. All right, I'm gonna um, go to some of the questions that are in the Q&A. So this is a question about the availability and supply of electric buses and um, electric trains in particular in Massachusetts. Is the equipment produced locally or is Massachusetts importing it from other states or abroad? I'm happy to take that, Stacey, if you want, or we can bounce around or a bunch of us. Um, so the short answer is that electric, electric buses um, of the type that the MBTA needs are not available to purchase anywhere, really, at the scale that the MBTA needs. Um, that being said, it is piloting a number of different vehicle types right now to kind of learn what their strengths and weaknesses are and what we might be able to make work going forward. Um, more generally, transit vehicles are not typically produced in Massachusetts. Obviously, there's a, a sort of special arrangement for the red and orange line cars that are being built right now. Um, but the transit, the transit vehicle industry is, is a small one. It's heavily centered in Europe and Asia. Um, it, it causes problems for transit in America that it's, it's hard to get different types of vehicles and it's very hard to get them quickly. Um, so that's a very short answer, but um, happy to talk about it more too. Thank you, Kate. And Sejal, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say the um, transit authorities that have been awarded funding through our VW Open Solicitation, I believe their, um, their purchases are, uh, the buses that they're purchasing are being made in the U.S. Um, parts assembled or not, uh, I'm sure there's, it's a global um, supply chain there, uh, but I do believe that uh, it's not in Massachusetts. Yep, I agree. Anybody else want to add before we move on? Okay, um, next question. I think this is probably best answered by you, Sejal, is will the college and university grant program be expanded to private schools? And if not, why? Uh, currently, we cannot extend it to private uh, universities or colleges. Uh, it is basically uh, the funding source that we're using for that program that limits how we uh, delve out that funding and it is meant only for public entities. So until we can find more funding, which is an answer to the question you asked very first time, uh, very first question you asked um, is if we can find more funding to go towards it, um, I would love to do that, but currently it cannot be expanded. Great, thank you. And um, Sejal or, or Nat, can you add which, um, or articulate which are the 10 states that have signed the ZEV MOU? I can take that, Nat. 
Uh, it's uh, California, Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, Maine, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Vermont. I did Google that, so I didn't do that off the top of my head. That's great. Thank you, Sejal. Um, and the next question is for Mela. Have you had conversations with the MBTA about overnight train idling in the winter months, even if it's not for forecasted to be below freezing? And are there any other strategies being looked at to avoid the air and noise pollution that this causes? Oh, you've got to unmute yourself. I realize I'm talking and nobody can hear me. Um, recently, we've been um, talking to the uh, MBTA, Keolis, and whoever else will listen about the idling um, even in the daytime. Uh, there are some times of the day when the Fairmont Line train actually would sit on the tracks uh, in traffic and um, so a number of uh, seniors who live in a development next to Talbot Ave Station were complaining that they were starting to get sick and manifest respiratory illness and other illnesses. So um, working with the Fairmont Indigo Transit Coalition, uh, we've been looking into um, getting some air monitors and we had spent an, a lot of time working on the overnight idling um, on the line and actually listening out and hearing when you could hear when the trains were sitting there, just not moving in the middle of the night. I used to live up the hill from Fairmont Station for about eight years. And so, yes, we are actually working on that right now because that's a problem. Excellent, thank you. Uh, and so I have a question for Alex. Uh, can you share what you think the Commonwealth can do to make better progress toward achieving our goal of getting 300,000 uh, ZEVs on the road by 2025? Sure, thank you um, for the question. Um, I think some of the things that um, the folks from DEP and DOER were talking about uh, are, are definitely um, sort of a step in the right direction, which is that we, you know, we need to lower the cost of, of EVs, um, EV chargers, um, incentivize owners of multi-unit dwellings to, to install chargers. All of those things I think are really, uh, really important um, and crucial and, and, and just raising awareness of, of electric vehicles. Um, I think just from the utility perspective, again, one thing I think that has been sort of, um, that has not really been talked enough about is EV rate design. And I think um, you know time of use rates um, are really important for for level two chargers as we as we move forward to to encourage um, off peak charging to encourage customers to EV owners to charge at home overnight when the cost of electricity is cheaper, uh, which is which good for them if, if they can realize some of those savings and good for the grid, um, really just a win win for everyone. Um, and I think you know in terms of uh, rate design for fast chargers. Um, some of the things I've seen um, talked about is, is, is removing demand charges uh, for fast chargers uh, for, for a period of time until EV, um, EV adoption picks up, uh, I think is another thing. But I think um, EV rate design is something that needs to be talked about more. Thank you, Alex. And Rachel, did you have anything you wanted to add? 
Excellent. Um, so next question is, who decides the cost to use a public access electric vehicle charging station that's funded by MassDEP? Sorry, muted. Um, so our, our program does not um, design, you know, what rates a site host would charge. So that's up to the site host, the owner. Great, and Alex, uh, back to you. So what infrastructure or grid modification needs to occur in order for time of use rates to be implemented? Yeah, I think, you know, for this to work, to re work really well, you'd need smart meters um, throughout the state. Um, but I think uh, there are ways to do this on a smaller scale, at least um, the way the National Grid proposed it was as a rebate um, and, and using the data from the EV charger itself um, to uh, figure out when customers were charging and then provide them a rebate for those and, and, and letting them know a day, like a day ahead, what, what the price will be during that time. Um, I think that's, you know, that's one way to do it. It's, it's certainly not ideal, but there are other technologies um, that can allow you to, um, to kind of back into some of these things. Great. Thanks, Alex. Uh, a question for Kate about TCI. Can you share a little bit more detail about the timing of the next steps and whether you think that the states who sign on to uh, participate in TCI will be ready to go by early 2022? So timing is something we're trying to figure out right now. Um, as everybody can probably imagine, um, it has been a tough time to get the attention of governor's offices on this issue. Um, you know, no, nothing wrong with that. It's just sort of the way it's been. Um, so we're right now kind, kind of trying to figure out what, what will make sense all up and down the corridor. Uh, I think everybody is sensitive to and aware of the fact that we, we don't want to take our foot off the gas, if you forgive the pun. Um, but we do need to sort of honor what's going on in all the states and, and find a way to work around that. New York obviously is an incredibly important piece of the TCI puzzle and they obviously have a lot going on. So we're working on that. Um, in terms of being ready to go by 2022, that's I guess a hard question for me to answer right now. Some of it depends on when we kind of officially launch. Um, some of it depends on which states kind of come, come in at the beginning, if it's not all of them. And some of it depends on just the kind of individual pathways that I mentioned for each state. Certainly, we have been doing modeling work as if that will be true. And it would be my hope, or even before. Um, but I just, I think there's a lot between here and there to be able to say definitively. Excellent. Thank you for clarifying, Kate. Um, let's get back to electric vehicles as a topic. So how can we make EVs uh, more affordable for transit dependent folks and those with uh, low incomes for, you know, people who are unable to spend <coughs> 20 to $30,000 in order to purchase a new ZEV? I can start if you want, Stacey. Um, so uh, DOER, Department of Energy Resources, had done a pilot, low-income pilot program for EV, um, EV purchase. Uh, it did not go so well. So we're, we're taking lessons learned from that and moving them along to another program. I don't know where that stands right now, but it is definitely something that we are considering, uh, DOER is considering, um, and we're, hopefully it'll be rolled out after this COVID business is over. Um, 
it, one, one note would be, you know, as more EVs come online, the price is dropping. Um, and also the used EV market, uh, a used EV is considerably cheaper than um, a, a similar, you know, a Nissan Leaf versus a Nissan Altima or something, a similar model year is much, much cheaper. There is also the um, Consumer Alliance, and I'm blanking on the, the name currently, uh, but they're doing a, amazing work in getting bulk pricing uh, for EVs that you can get an additional uh, dollar amount off the price of that vehicle. And they're using, uh, they're also having that on top for used EVs as well. So it's making them considerably cheaper. That's great. And I believe you're referring to the Green Energy Consumers Alliance program. Thank you. Yep, I blanked on the name. That's okay. That's great. Um, does anybody else want to add to the low income EV question? I'll just note that um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to potentially use some of the TCI revenue to really support the advancement of electric vehicles and battery electric buses in low income communities and communities of color. Um, we are going to go on to the next question, which uh, I think is going to be for Na. Can you clarify whether Massachusetts will be able to meet stricter standards given the recent uh, revocation of the California waiver and the rollback of the Obama administration federal clean car standards? Yeah, um, sure. I mean, that's a hard question to answer, um, but we're, we're trying right now we're still implementing the program um and automakers are still complying with the zev reporting requirements and um and i think the automakers will over comply um to the the new safe rule because they're already uh in production of um with all these new technologies built into their vehicles and usually their uh, production line is five years in advance. Um, so they're already making EVs right now um, and more fuel efficient uh, vehicles. So I believe that even though the safe rules in place, they're still going to comply with the current rule, not current rule, but the 2012, because they're already making these vehicles. Um, so that's and we're hoping that's going to be the case. Uh, we're not enforcing the program. We're implementing the program. Um, and also, if we don't get the reduction from that, we can, right now, we're trying to uh, offset it with uh, other programs, um, trying to get that reduction savings um, from maybe heavy-duty vehicles, um, because this only applies to um, light duty. So maybe we'll get more saving from the heavy duty. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so we have another question that uh, I'm going to start with Alex to see if you can answer. So um, utilities have, have representatives from utility companies in the past have talked about 
if there are a number of uh, electric vehicle chargers that are basically all in use at the same time, that that could potentially max out the transformers for a particular circuit. And so the question is, does the Department of Public Utilities have the authority to address that issue and set the rules to enable existing infrastructure to um, meet the needs of the anticipated increase in EV charging that's going to be needed to get us to our 2025 zero emission vehicle goal. Sure. Um, so, you know, I'll let let the department speak for themselves as to their authority, but I, you know, I think they have they have a lot of, of authority in this regard in terms of uh, requiring the utilities to um, propose particular rate. Uh, rate tariffs. Um, I, I, so I, I think it's entirely within their proposal. I, I think, you know, what they've said so far is, is reasonable, which is that uh, we need to wait and see what, you know, um, what, how these programs do and, and sort of the data that's collected from these, um, from these, from the charters. And, um, but, I, but I think this is something that, you know, in terms of, um, it's important to, before, EV adoption really ramps up. It's really important to get people in the habit of, of, of good charging behavior. You don't want people to just be out and about charging all over town um, and get in the habit of doing that when really the best thing for them, if they can, if they have the option, would be to charge at home overnight. So I think it's something that needs to be addressed. That's great. Thank you, Alex. And certainly, I think it's uh, about individual behavior and also about structures, rate designs in place that are encouraging people to change those behaviors and adopt the ones that are most beneficial for the electric grid and for our climate. Um, so we have another question about whether we would be in supporting the location of electric vehicle charging stations in low-income communities that maybe don't have a lot of EV uh, usage at that time, even if there's not a lot of people who are owning or driving EVs in that community. I guess I can start. Um, so our mass EV programs, we don't require, the, none of the grant applications require you to show that you have EVs in the neighborhood, if it's the fleet program or if at the workplace or at a multi-unit dwelling. Um, we've had multiple applicants um, that have started with just one charger to see how it goes as a pilot and then have come back asking for more funds because they've gone to capacity so quickly. It's just kind of a, if you build it, they will come scenario. Um, as far as the low income uh, aspect of it, uh, we at DEP have, um, very much uh, made sure that environmental justice communities are taken into account for our programs and for our competitive solicitations. And you know, if a project is uh, found within an environmental justice community, it is given a preference um, for the programs that were launched in 2019. Thank you, Sejal. And just a follow-up question to that: Is Mass DEP considering offering? an increased amount of grants for uh, low-income purchasers of electric vehicles, or is there any sort of tiered in incentive structure that DEP is considering? So DEP doesn't have a, uh, a consumer EV program. So this was for the fleet's EV that I was um, talking about. Uh, so that would be our uh, DOER, Department of Energy Resources, that runs the more EV program. Um, like I said, they are considering that low-income uh, program. We they did try one uh, a couple of years ago, I want to say two years ago, and it didn't, 
just the practicalities did not work out um, the way they had set it up. So they are reconsidering it and redrafting it. Um, I don't know where it stands currently, but I do know that people are working on it. Excellent. Thank you. And one final question that I'd like all of our panelists to try to answer. Um, are you feeling hopeful about the future of the transportation sector? Why or why not? I'm happy to start. Um, I mean, I guess, yes, in the sense people, people will always move around. People like to move around. Um, I, we, we don't know kind of how travel patterns are going to change over the next couple of years and then what, what will remain with us and what will not after we come out of this period. Um, I, I am hopeful because I think all polling data shows that people are increasingly concerned about climate. They can, you know, this, this experience will certainly help draw the connection for people between emissions and health and transportation. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind that the transportation systems are very large pieces of infrastructure that cost lots and lots of money and change happens very slowly. Um, but I have seen a lot of change in my career and I think that we will continue to. Not as fast as any of us would want, but it's definitely happening. Thank you, Kate. I'll go next. Go ahead, Mel. That's okay, you can go. I was just going to echo what Kate said. I, I agree completely. And then I'll add that um, I, I, I am very excited because I know a lot of the large automakers have announced EV plans uh, from now till 2025 with uh, a lot of models coming online that will be uh, what folks want to buy. So I think that's a really good sign and I am hopeful. Yeah, I was just going to um, say the same thing that you just said, Sejo, that um, a lot of automakers are planning to introduce a lot of EVs, different models um, for the coming years. And like I said earlier, that um, because they have planned um, the business plan, it's way in advance. So they already have these vehicles in place. So we're going to see a lot of not just light duty, but there's also going to be medium duty trucks and vans in the future. So that's going to be exciting um, because right now you can only mostly get passenger vehicles, but in the future we're going to see more um, bigger cars, that's for EV. Mella? Oh, looks like Mella maybe has lost her internet connection for a moment. Um, Alex, do you have anything to add? Sure, I would just um, I would just say that I am hopeful. I think you know we have a lot of smart people working on this, um, as evidenced by this this panel. Um, one example, um, I think there's you know frankly there's a lot of a lot of money to be made um, with EVs and EV charging, and I think um, I think we'll get there. Uh, might not take as might not be as quick as as people would want it, but I think uh, we'll certainly get there. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate everyone's time. Thank you to the panelists for sharing your wisdom today. Really appreciate the attendees who made time and, and joined us today. Thanks for the great questions. And um, this recording will be available after the fact. It'll be posted on the Boston Bar Association website and we will make sure to email slides to all of the participants. Thank you to our speakers. Let's give a virtual round of applause.
<laughs> Excellent. Uh, thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Desi. It was great. Thank you. Thank Bye, you. everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye.